Thank you so much for joining us as we look over the Qatari Grand Prix weekend, the first of 21 MotoGP races in 2022, and we've had a belter of a results with a brand new winner. Ennio Bastianini on a 2021 Ducati has won for Team Grassini, emotionally a year after the loss of team boss Fausto Grassini. Paul Espargaro on the Repsol Honda had a stranglehold of the race, but his soft tyre choice that works so well in the first part faded as Bastianini's harder choice game good with five laps to go. Simon Patterson, Matt Beer and myself, Toby Moody, we're going to chat about the opener. Simon, I think this is a bit of an easy question for you. What was the best bit of the weekend? The pictures from inside the Grassini box whenever the checkered flag went out, obviously. This fairy tale's come true. Matt, same goes for you. What was your favourite part? Oh, absolutely the same. It's You always want to be prepared when you're on the news desk, when the race is finishing. You want to get ready to get the report out quickly. And I was sort of hovering over the picture downloads going, do I dare download a Bastianini <laughs> picture? Is that going to jinx it? I, th I think he's got it. And I, I did. I did. I downloaded it, got the headline ready and everything, and he, he still did it. And... Oh, uh, yeah. What an emotional result. Absolutely brilliant. Me, I was watching from home and I thought on the warm-up lap, I said to my wife, I said, Mark's going to win it. Mark's going to do it. But I said, but if he doesn't, I've got no idea who's going to win it. Um, I love that unknowingness about who's not going to win, and especially at the first race, and especially the fairy tale for Grassini. So uh, everybody's a winner there. I think Bastianini's great line, one of many after the race, was we all cried at the end of the race, but his pace towards the end of a race has always been super strong, Simon. We saw it at Misano last year. That's my abiding memory. A Mother 2 world champion from 2020. Um... Has he turned a corner over the winter? Has he gone another level up? I don't think he's turned a corner. I think he's ended, he started 2022 exactly where he ended 2021, except now he's got a bike that lets him be more competitive. Um, you know, We saw this kid twice in the podium at the end of last season with exceptional form towards the second half of races. And he did it all from terrible, terrible, terrible qualifying positions. You know, he, he was... You know, we talked a lot last year about Brad Bender and about Juan Mir as Sunday men, but Ennio Bastianini was the ultimate Sunday man last season. Uh, but the, the downside to everything was always the fact that he was doing it all on a 2019 Ducati. The bike was almost three years old. He wasn't getting the upgrades. He had big deficits here and there versus both you know the rest of the grid and the current spec of Ducati. But we always knew that whenever he jumped onto a 2021 bike, which was a beautifully refined package that won four out of the last six races at the end of last season, that he would have a big boost, especially at the start of the season. And I think what we saw on Sunday was was him delivering exactly on what uh, what all that preseason expectation and promise showed. He was able to qualify, which was a uh, something that was very difficult in the old bike. But the new bike is so much more smooth, and that allows him to be faster over one lap now. He did that. He started from second in the grid. That made all of the difference because it meant that he didn't have so much work to do. And he came through really exactly like he did at, at Misano last year, except instead of having to come through from 18th, he was having to come through from fourth. And instead of him finishing third, he finished first. It, it, it all makes sense. And you could see it coming in testing in a way as well. It just It still seemed too good to be true. But as soon as he got on a bike that was going to let him qualify well, 
everything everything else in the package was there the race craft the confidence you know there was there was nothing else missing he looked in his race performances last year he already looked like a veteran and now he's got a bike that can get him near the front of the grid then you know the, the, in theory there's no stopping him but the caveat is how long is this advantage of being on the fully sorted confidence inducing totally developed bike going to last well before everybody else gets their bikes to a similar position Simon, what was the vibe in the paddock for Bastianini to win the race? I mean, therefore, what were the betting odds before the the red light went out at the start of the race? I bet you we could all have got ourselves a very good dinner out of that one. Um, what was the vibe for him to win, looking back on it? I think it was the whole paddock had the same opinion as you, Toby. Nobody really had a clue who was going to win. It, it was a really open race for you know all sorts of factors that, that will work our way through over the course of the next hour. There was lots of reasons why certain people were performing or not performing or why you know it was a very level playing field. So in the context of that, for Bastianini to win isn't it didn't come as a huge surprise to everyone. I think you would probably have struggled to find someone who would have put him down as their clear pre-race favourite in the paddock. But that's no slight against him. That's just because there's 10 people who are in the same category as him. And for any one of those 10 to have come out on top, you know, no, one, no one is shocked by it, um, especially given you know, all the things we've just mentioned, his, his preseason form, his testing form, his ability to put together one lap now in his end of last year, and the fact that he's on that, that really sordid Ducati. We see him through the television. What's he like face-to-face? What's his general attitude? He's he's one of those kids that you you think, how are you a motorbike racer? How are you a, an axe murderer when the visor comes down? Because he's the nicest, sweetest kid. Doesn't speak great English, but, you know, likes to have a go at it. Um, is super friendly in the paddock. Will always come over and say hello. Loves, really loves doing, um, you know, as we're starting to go back from doing media debriefs and Zoom to media, doing media debriefs in real life. Loves coming to the media center, having everyone crowding around him, having a bit of a laugh and a joke. Really good vibes off him. Um, he he has the potential, I think, especially with uh, thanks to our friends at Amazon, he has the potential to come out of this season a real fan's favourite. Oh, is he a bit of a star for the MotoGP Unlimited? Yeah, I think he. I think this year they will be very much focusing on him now going forwards. And um, yeah, yeah, I think he's he's going to do very well out of it. Let's put it that way. And he deserves it because he is the character and the personality for it. Yeah, but coming f- through Team Grassini, you know, that he's in is just... <sighs> There's a good friend of mine, Maria Guidotti, journalist in the paddock. I think Matt, you'll know her from, from Four Wheels as well, and Simon know her from Two Wheels. She's she's part of the Mugello family as well, as 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 well as Grassini. She was part of Grassini with the Sete years and then the Tony Elias Fortuna years. And... We spent some time on the Dakar together, so lots of time to talk. And she said, the laughs we had, you know, I'd be on the floor. I'd be on the floor. I wouldn't be able to breathe. And yet, when we were serious, we'd go and win a race with Seta Gibbonow against Valentino Rossi. <laughs> you know, but the laughs they had, and she she, she sort of gave me this little insight as to what the team is like. And you can see so much of that now. And Simon, you caught up with Carlo Mellini, Last night after the race, he'd been with he's been with Grassini for forever in the paddock, practically. Yeah, and one of the best lines was, "We wrote a beautiful page of the MotoGP history 
the rest, the 25 points a win, is kind of secondary. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. It's fantastic. And it's, it's you know, it's this this bittersweet tragedy that is the, the Grissini racing story as well, which you'd also touched upon in the interview. Sete uh, Gibrano won the first race back in 2003 at Velcom after Dejero Cato, who'd been riding for the team, had been killed at Suzuka. Michele Pirro won the first race, uh, the first Moto2 race back after Marco Simoncelli had been killed. Um, yeah, and it's funny, while we were talking about this, while he was telling me this last night, I looked over and uh, Michele Pirro was giving Fabio Di Giantonio the biggest hug in the background at the corner of the garage. He just appeared out of nowhere to, to celebrate with the team. You know, and, and that... I, I, I spent a little bit of time last night in Pitley and outside their garage waiting on someone to, to speak to them. And there was just this string of people passing through the, the, the Grassini box to just, just come and hug Nadia and Carlo. And, you know, Livio Supo was there, Davide Tardazzi was there, just all of these team bosses coming through to tell them what an amazing thing they'd done. Um, and that, that says a lot, I think, about the, the way the team is seen and the, 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 the way that the team presents themselves. You know, Grassini was such a big part of the era of MotoGP that almost everybody loves the most in in the early 2000s, in the Rossi years. It, it's felt really, really wrong to see them kind of fading to a bit of irrelevance and invisibility as well at Aprilia. You know, out, outside the paddock, people didn't necessarily know that was Grassini's team. There was seven years where Grassini just wasn't really part of the part of the story properly. And and yet it's given so much to MotoGP with through the Gibernau years, Simon Challey just bringing everything alive for that short period. So in any circumstances, Grassini coming back to the top was going to be a massively evocative result for, for fans of the last two decades. But for it to happen a year after Fausto died as well, and in this circumstance of having rebuilt itself into an independent team, you know, it was you, you can see why there were tears in the paddock, and I'm sure there were tears for an awful lot of people watching as well. It was just such a feel-good result. Nice as well, though, that Aprilia was up the front as well. Both parties have managed to rebuild themselves after that split so quickly and so and so smoothly. Yeah, because it's, it's worth noting that, you know, the, the Aprilia guys are, they don't bury the history of, of being part of Grassini. They very much, they're very quick to attribute their success to the work that Fausto did when they were together still. They're not, you know, they're not ashamed of, of that link. And, and similarly, uh, Grissini know what they did for Aprilia. Um, so it's, it's quite nice to see a relationship where that can be celebrated. And after the loss to Fausto, his other half, Nadia, has stood in. And you know, she, I've never met her. I've never met her. But she was just shocked and... Oh, I've lost for words. What was she like once she maybe composed herself an hour after the race? Simon? She, she. I know Nadia kind of just to say hello to. We we don't speak too much because she doesn't have fantastic English, and I have almost zero Italian, so we we don't have a fantastic you know rapport with her. But the one thing more than anything else that stood out last night was how every person I spoke to in the team was so quick to praise the job that Nadia has done kind of rebuilding them as a family after the loss of Fausto, or how there was this huge hole in the team to fill because there was, you know, he was a big, a small man with a big presence. Um, and he was the glue that held the whole thing together. And it would have been very easy for, for the team to carry on without him, but not to be the same. And it seems like she has come in and made sure that's not the case. Made sure it, it 
the, the essence of what made the team his is still very much there. And and Di Antonio spoke about it. Uh, Bastianini spoke about it. Carlo spoke about it. A few of the other people I know inside the garage all spoke about it last night to me, about what an amazing job she's done under just the most trying circumstances. I know. It's only one race. I know there's 20 races to go. I know it's a daft question. But, but Can it, he do it? Does Can it he... matter that it's only one I'm race? Sorry? Does it does it matter that it's only one race? You know, he's written the fairy tale now. It, it almost it almost doesn't matter if he's not in the podium again for the rest of the season. It, but he will. He better. He ought to. Yeah, but he will. Yeah, but yeah, he will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and we'll maybe we'll I've got in my plan here that we're going to talk about KTM, but maybe we'll go to Ducati. Let's let's do that. So, you know, you you said a minute ago, Simon, that he had a 2019 bike in 2021. He's got a 2020 bike in 20. Uh, he's got last year's bike in 2022. So he's he's a year younger, but still behind the eight ball. What essentially you said in that comment was he concentrated on him, the bike. He never got any updates. It just worked. He had a good run at Mazzano. He's kept the the flow through the winter. Works Ducati, Bagnaia, they've messed with everything, and the whole thing was a complete disaster. And as you touched on last night with your report on the website, on the race.com, Ducati had to apologise to Bagnaia, a championship favourite and my chosen favourite for the championship. When have you ever heard a team saying, we're really sorry, we made a bit of a dog's dinner of this? Wow. Well, I've I've heard teams say it before, but not in the context of it. So I'm glad we have the co- the podcast to kind of explain the context of those comments that Davide Tardazzi gave me last night. So we we did a, a debrief with Bagnaia, and he went off on quite a strong attack against Ducati. The the exact line he used, referring to what you've just said, Toby, he said that uh, I haven't had the same bike for two days of preseason testing. Bagnai, or Bastianini got given a bike in Jerez and all he's done since then is put fuel in it and ride it. And that's, that's the difference. So I went to, to find Davide Tardazzi. And I, you, you know how it is as a journalist. You, you, whenever you've got a difficult subject to broach, you throw in a little softball question at the start to kind of ease into it. And I said to him, you know, obviously a fantastic day for, for Inea. And, and, and he said, yeah, you know, Inea did an amazing job. We all knew he could do it, blah, blah, blah. But we have to apologize for what happened on the other side of the box. He is the one who started to apologize before I even mentioned Bagnaya, which is just, I've never heard a team boss do that before. And he, he went on to say that they now realize what they've done wrong. They've turned him into a tester when he should be a racer, that they haven't given him the concentration that he needs, the, the sort of the, the level playing field that he needed through the start of testing. And I get the impression into this weekend as well, because of that dramatic reversion to the older spec of engine that they made just before this weekend. So that basically meant that a big chunk of his testing time just went in the bin. It was, it was pointless to do because it was on a different bike. So yeah, for them to come out and say what they said makes it very apparent that they know that they've made a mistake. Um, and it's probably, I think that the best thing you can take from it is that it has taken one bad race for them to identify what went wrong. And you'd imagine that serious changes are going to be put in place going ahead. Um, one thing that Bagnaya in particular highlighted that they needed to do, which might not go down too well, was, uh, they need to start using Pramac more the way that 
Pramac used to be used in the Miller days, in the Petrucci days, when they were the development team for the factory. Of course, that's going to be different, difficult for two reasons. One being that they're now on two different bikes. The, the Pramac guys didn't revert back to that older spec of engines, so they're on a different engine from the factory team. And then the second thing is that Pramac have a championship contender all of their own. And Jorge Martin is not going to want to spend time doing Peco's development work for him when he thinks he can beat him in the championship. Basically, Peco said the same thing every day about uh, how he hadn't had enough time with a stable condition on the bike, how he was testing so many parts. And it kind of built up from a sort of slightly gentler side on Friday to, to Saturday. I think it was Saturday when he joked about being asked if he should be egotistic, egotistic, egotistical. And he went, yeah, finally. And then by Sunday, it's like, no, actually, this is the consequence. Of not of not giving me a chance to concentrate on actually being a title contender. I'm way down the grid and I'm going. I'm making a mess of the race because you put me in an unfair position. And his comments on Sunday were so much more forceful than these kind of friendly Italian hints he'd been dropping through the weekend. But I mean, massive fair play to Ducati to Tardozzi for coming out with an apology on a day when it could have gone well. Actually, you know, you're a works MotoGP rider. You should be able to cope with developing a bike and being a title contender. So many people have done that over the years. And look, you, you're the one who crashed in the race you know, and took out another one of our bikes. And so many other situations, a team boss could have taken that route. But to, to throw their hands up straight away, I guess they have, they've, got a, they've committed to Peko for the long term now. He's got a big contract. They, they want that relationship to work. But yeah, I was uh, pleasantly surprised by that but, and a little bit shocked. Maybe it took another Ducati winning the race for them to really have a slap around the face. Uh, if it was a Honda, Yamaha, Suzuki, Katie, who knows what the reaction might have been when Simon sat down in front of Tardozzi. But the old Ducati, the old Ferrari, arguably, Matt, they would just struggle along and struggle along. You do have to remind yourselves, I said it numerous times in the last couple of weeks to friends, Ducati have only won one championship in the last 20 years. <laughs> Ferrari and, and Ferrari won their last championship in 2007, the last time Ducati won a title. Um, they've got to get out of this hole and they've got to think differently. I won't use the cliche out of the box. They've got to think differently than what they've done for the past 15 years, 14 years, because it patently doesn't work when the others keep steamrolling ahead. I do think this might be a bit too philosophical, but I do think there's a trend across motorsport of teams realizing how important it is to keep their riders and their drivers' heads in the right places. Now, you you saw that with the change at KTM over the winter. There's there's more focus on these people are athletes, but they're also humans, and the margins are so close that if someone's head isn't in the right place, if they're feeling kind of worn down by their team, they're going to be missing that half a tenth of a second, which you know matters so much now at the top end of something like MotoGP. And so I think you can definitely see that with how um, with how Tardozzi was was treating things with Pecco over the weekend. As you both know, I'm a massive cycling fan. And the same thing kind of happened in cycling, where everything got super, super competitive, super, super close. And this is where Team Sky came in with their marginal gains philosophy, where if you can shave one thousandth of a second off every single part of the team, it adds up into real change. And I think MotoGP are kind of catching on to that now, that that maybe um, you're not going to gain a tenth of a second by having the rider in a slightly more aerodynamic set of leathers, but you might gain a thousandth of a second. And then if you gain another 
thousandth of a second from having the rider in a better place mentally. Then, you know, all of these things add up. And, and it is just the nature of how insanely close the championship is at the minute. We had, like, what, a second covering 18 riders and qualifying. It's nuts. <laughs> it is a close circuit as well. It does compact them all together. It, don't think it'll be like that at every race, but you never know now that the rules are beginning to settle down and that's what happens when rules settle down as opposed to what's happening in F1 where it'll all be a bit of a free-for-all for the first few races. We suspect, we suspect. Uh, on the other side of the Ducati garage, Jack Miller, well, he retired with a technical problem. You don't get technical retirements nowadays in modern motorsport to, to that degree that we used to have in the old days an electronics problem meant that the bike was giving power no power the wrong torque in the wrong places not a great start <sighs> wrong ducati wins race it um it sounds a bit like so jack was you know jack is normally a jack debrief takes like twice as long as anyone else's and last night's was like a minute and 30 he just did not want to talk. So we didn't get too much information out of him. But it sounds like he had a, a similar pro, um, problem to... Toby, you might remember this better than me. Cal Crutchlow had the same issue a few years ago at Qatar as well in the opening race, where the bike didn't recognise where on track it was. And the mapping was all wrong as a result. It sounded like Jack had something like that. Um, the one thing he did say was, we know what we've done, it'll never happen again. Um, but that, that doesn't make up for the fact that he didn't finish the race, of course. Um, but he he was never going to win the race. That's that's the thing. He was in the same position as Bagnaya, where if if everything had been going according to plan, he still wasn't going to be at the sharp end because it just wasn't there for them. Just to explain what Simon says, what the the mapping does, what the, they call it strategy. What the mapping does is okay. You open the throttle at this point at turn one, and the bike measures at what angle it is it measures what slip there is with the rear tire it says okay i'm going to give you this much torque it's not about power it's about torque uh and and that'll be different per angle of lean that you're at and what slip the rear tire is giving more slip probably at the end of the race and it knows to it okay i've done turn one now i'm going to turn two so if it's out of sync and it's giving turn 12 torque at turn one which is a different radius corner it's all going to go cock-a-hoop. So that's just to explain what probably happened. It got lost in some way. So um, some wires come loose or something. But it sounded like it was wrong from the get-go. So when something's wrong at the beginning of a race, that's finger trouble and it wasn't done right in the garage. That's just an, a, 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 a guess from 3,000 miles away. Uh, so uh, that's usually what happens in a garage. KTM's best Qatar results was formerly an eighth position, but now it's a second, thanks to Brad Binder. He said the key to the result was smooth riding, like, well, he's never been able to ride the bike like that before. Uh, interesting, I read somewhere that Mark Marquez says, hmm, Binder is more of a threat to the championship than my own teammate, Paulus Bargaro, who did quite well in his own right, of course, yesterday in the race. He got third position. Has a corner really been turned by the orange guys? So let's start with Mark Marquez's comments. That is classic Mark Marquez psychology because Paul beat him 100%. That is absolutely what that is. That's him trying to get in Paul's head. Nothing more. Uh, I don't think 
that uh, Brad is more of a title threat. Um, simply because we don't know if they've turned a corner or not. We need to see what the the new reality is for the KTM. Um, It's very apparent that only one KTM rider is able to do what he's doing right now. Um, He he seems to have found something. They they did make changes to the bike. I asked him last night, because they talked all the way through testing about potential of the bike that they already had and how they needed to develop that. And I asked him, you know, is is this a result of just playing with what you've got? And he said, no, we, we've added a lot of new stuff in the last few weeks. So whether that means that um, whether that means that they have turned a corner, whether that means that Brad has turned a corner with his riding style, or whether it's another KTM false dawn, of which there have been many, many, many over the last two years, um, I'm not sure. But I'm I'm not I'm definitely not going to be rushing out to put a bet on him as championship favorite just yet. It is clear that he is doing something really, really good in that bike. Like, don't get me wrong, he is riding it exceptionally well, and. For the maybe for the first time, really, it looks like KTM's strategy of making sure they had Binder tied in for the long term and leaving Miguel Oliveira sort of dangling in the wind a little bit is is paying off because let's be honest, whenever your teammate is is fighting for the win and you're crashing out of outside the top ten, it does not look fantastic for Oliveira's future prospects there. Um, that was kind of. It's kind of been the silly season story that we haven't really thought much about, but it's suddenly looking like uh, it could be one that comes into play. We do have to wonder, though, if that strategy of leaving Oliveira hanging in the wind <clears throat> actually contributed to him throwing it off the road. He's not been in a proper frame of mind for months, it seems, either since his injury last year and through the strange form in the second half of last season. I still don't get where Binder's peaks come from you know up until qualifying you know he was the slower ktm rider out of the two of them in, in practice two which decided q1 q2 he puts in this enormous lap in q1 and then he's in the mix and he does his his usual brilliant sunday performance really charges forward in the race um i've got so much respect for binder when he's on form i just still i don't have confidence that he knows where that form comes from and can produce it consistently so yeah i totally agree with you about uh, marcus's mm-hmm. comments being a, a little bit premature yeah, good psychology. Uh, interesting what Binder said of Francesco Guidotti to the Italian press. Guidotti, the new team manager. His arrival brought a great wave of positivity and energy. You can really feel the effects and he's a really great addition to the team. It's nice to have him around. All I can say is that really does say something about where they were at with the previous setup. So that's all going well for Binder. Uh, just picking up on what you said, Matt, you know, you don't know where it comes from. I, he's just a Sunday man. That's the way I look at it. I don't look at it as a negative. He's just a Sunday man. Norik Abe was the same. There's many others through the years who just don't do qualifying. Valentino Rossi, he had trouble qualifying back in 06 and still was knocking on the door of the championship come the last race. It just didn't work technically. But anybody who can win a Moto3 race from the back of the grid at Hareth, which Binder did, he's uh, he's a bit of a ledge in my book. That's I, I just put him as a Sunday guy. He, he, but he's very he's very laissez-faire, isn't he? He's just very, oh, well, yeah, whatever. Get him on a bike, go. I think the, the thing with that is it's it's okay to be a Sunday man, but um, you need to be a Sunday man every every Sunday. And that's the, that's the question mark. 
And also, okay, he's uh, he's completely proved wrong what I'm about to say by what he did in Qatar last night. But <laughs> you cannot afford to to rely on being a Sunday man anymore in MotoGP with it so close. If you're down the grid, you've got to really nail the start and nail the first lap because you haven't got like 12 nobodies and some CRT bikes in front of you if you've qualified badly. You've got 15 people who are capable of winning MotoGP races and... You know, Qatar certainly wasn't professional, but it was hard to make up ground in the race because there were not huge differences in performance, at least until tyre wear kicked in properly. So you've got to be getting Saturday right as well. And the perfect example of how important it is to get Saturday right and of the depth of field is in Air Bastianini. Mm. Very true, very true. Uh, Polis Bargaro, his second podium for HRC. The soft tyres worked all the way until the end. He got passed by Bastianidi, but didn't quite factor in the slipstream effect, and he ran on at the first corner that ultimately lost him second place come the flag. He, Moto2 champion from 2013, he's still yet to win a race in the big class. He still needs to break his duck. But does this now mean that Honda have a bike that other people can ride well and not just Marquez? I'm going to start by throwing in the most incredible statistic from the, the venerable Dr. Martin Rains of Sunday's race being a new record. Alicia Spagaro is the only rider on Sunday's grid who has not won a Grand Prix. The other 23 riders in the grid are all Grand Prix winners in one of the three classes, over three classes, which is just insane whenever it comes to talking about how, depth, how, how strong the grid is. Um, Honda have built a bike that everybody but Mark Marquez can ride at the minute, I think, um, because they've finally listened to everyone else and built a bike that's actually friendly. And it turns out Mark doesn't actually do friendly all that well. Um, the thing is, he is obviously supremely talented, and, and I think he just hasn't got his head around it yet. It will come. Um, it will take him a bit of time. He's still adapting to his riding style. Um, there's actually... Strangely enough, there's been some really good insight has come out of Mark Marquez's camp this weekend um, from Dazon Spanish TV's new commentator, Jorge Lorenzo, who's been sort of in and out of Mark's box quite a bit, it seems, and, and has said, you know, repeatedly that Mark has told him he's just he just hasn't figured out how to ride this bike yet. Um, I don't for a minute believe that Mark Marquez isn't capable of adapting because we, we've seen what an adaptable rider he is in the past, so it will come. Um, but you know, the combination of not being fully fit, not being, um, you know, having missed winter testing and stuff like that means he's just not hundred percent there yet. Uh, the, the only issue for him seems to be that, um, you know, how well did the other Hondas do in his not absence, but you know, this is not 2020 where Honda can no longer put a bike on the podium without him. This is 2022 where I think there's a strong field of, of Honda riders and, I think that the comments from Paul um, or from, from Mark about Paul are kind of indicative of maybe him feeling a little bit of pressure. Yeah, it, yeah, he did. You don't expect to see Marquez get beaten by a teammate in a season opener. But what Marquez was saying to you pre-season, Simon, with the psychology that he's taking into this, this championship of you've got to be quick by the start of May, you've got to be quick by Jerez. These these first races aren't irrelevant, but it's going to take time to settle down. You've got to be confident on your bike and competitive when you get into that fortnightly grind of European circuits with similar characteristics. You know, he's still figuring his fitness out. He's he's still figuring the bike out, and he is such an adaptable rider. Like you say, when he the first time he lost the championship, he came back 
even more unstoppable because he worked out where to leave a tiny bit of a margin. Still Marquez, still still crashing a lot and still racing through injuries and stuff, but he did learn from that first defeat. I, I'm still convinced that we haven't yet seen what this third iteration of Marquez is actually capable of, this post-career-threatening injury, elder statesman Marquez surrounded by aggressive kids. He he will find a new way to be champion in this scenario without necessarily being the fastest. And yeah, he he gave it a very good go on the first lap last night. And then I just I honestly felt like he was he was making sure he got a top five finish rather than risking throwing anything down the road. That's exactly right. Uh, he said that he crashed in the warm up. He lost the confidence, um, but then he admitted that a few years ago he would have overridden to desperately get a place, but the risk of binning it is is too big nowadays. So that third iteration, which is a great way of looking at it, Matt, shows that he's got a wiser head than before. Uh, the other thing he's going to have to learn now is Jorge Lorenzo is not a fellow rider, and you're having a chat with him at the Safety Commission on a Friday night, He's a journalist. <laughs> Don't tell him stuff that he's going to say on air because Lorenzo, no, do- Lorenzo doesn't have a PR filter. He just <laughs> says it because he's a racer. And Mark doesn't look at Lorenzo as a journo. He wouldn't say what he said to Lorenzo to you, Simon. Sorry about that. But he wouldn't. So somebody in that team needs to sort that out now. <laughs> That's with my team head on. The first time I saw Jorge in the paddock at the weekend, he went, Simon, Simon, I am one of you now. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got an Irish passport. <laughs> Lives in the van. <laughs> what, what, come on then. What, was he, was he enjoying it? Do you think, Lorenzo? Yeah, yeah. We, so we, we'd have a, so I've, I've, there's already, we did like a, a season preview story on the site with him. Um, but there's a much sort of more in-depth part of the the conversation still to come in the next few days on the race. Um, he he's loving life. I, I genuinely think he said the only thing he misses is is that feeling of standing on the top step of the podium, which is of no surprise to anyone that has ever met or worked with Jorge Lorenzo. He you know that's, that's the sole reason he did it. But he likes traveling. He's got lots of uh, lots of interesting things planned in the uh, in the coming weeks and. A little bit of a teaser for the interview, just to make sure that people do listen to it. He told me that it's not unreasonable at some point in the future that we might see him racing against Valentino Rossi again. Ah, okay. GTs. Okay. Okay. Right. Mm. Now you say that, and I look back at the pictures from the weekend and from afar, maybe he's finally realized, or at peace with himself, I'm no longer a MotoGP racer. I think that's that's the feeling, yeah. yeah you know, you, 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 that was a stepping stone to get to where he is now, to give him the, the Dubai holidays and the Caribbean holidays and all the beach and all the whatever he does. Oh, and, and don't worry, they're still going to continue. He says he loves travel and he loves sunshine. Well, he's worked pretty bloody hard to get that money. He's had some horrendous injuries and he's not a three-time MotoGP world champion without good reason. So, you know, uh, he needs to uh, to enjoy it. Fair play, fair play. He will be less of a coiled spring, I suspect. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, Alicia Spargaro uh, thought he was going to get a podium. I'm sure you did, Simon. I thought he was going to get a podium, but even so, fourth position, the closest in time that an Aprilia has been to a MotoGP victory. 
2.24 seconds. But Qatar is a, a close track, if I can call it that. They're going in the right direction. Uh, Alesh said that he feels for the first time in his career that he has a bike that lets him be a championship contender. This is for the first time in all of his Grand Prix racing, he feels like he is a front runner now, based on all of testing and, and the results of last night. And there's almost a tin, there was almost a tinge of regret that it's come at 33 years old, um, that it's come right at the end of his career. But I think regardless of what happens next year, he is going out with a bang. If this is his, you know, if it doesn't extend or if he wants to go cycling, this is a big year for him. That is very much the vibe that, that we got from him last night. He is he is one of the big dogs and he's going to make the most of it because the Aprilia is just a good bike now, you know. They finished fourth last night and it didn't it didn't sort of register in anyone's gauges that that was something exceptional. Which is when you think about it in the context of of you know 2015 sort of hybrid half CRT thing with Stefan Bradle on board or trundling around at the back to have come to where they've come now with the resources they've got and frankly with the riders they've got as well because it, it hasn't been you know it has been an in-house project it's not been a Ducati drop in Jorge Lorenzo to try and go fast you know it, it's been really organic thing that they've built um it's quite nice to see actually so then Matt as the underdog team do you want Aprilia to win or Grassini to win? <laughs> well, Grassini's got theirs now, haven't they? Uh, Aprilia winning is too is too good a story. It, it's got to happen. It's got to happen at some point. It's got to be Elise who does it. Um, I didn't realise Elise had see, said he sees himself as a championship contender. I mean, that is big talk from someone who has still not won in you know, anything like this level. And uh, I, I just think I think there's there's riders and drivers who are just brilliant underdogs and that is what they are and I don't think they could sustain that performance under the pressure of a title fight Petrucci was one of them yeah, absolutely adore Petrucci but he was not going to be a world champion I'm glad he won some races I'd love to see Alicia get a couple of victories this year that would be amazing that would be almost as emotional as Grassini but ah, he's, he's not a championship contender that's 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 not his trajectory <laughs> Matt you'll know what I mean Simon I think you'll know what I mean he needs to be the Jean Alesi of MotoGP. He just, he's quite cool. He wears his heart on his sleeve, <laughs> but he needs to win one race. That's all Alesi won, <laughs> one race. Now, I know that he won it in I a think... Ferrari, but just one race. That's all you need. You know? <laughs> I, f- I feel like Alesi has, has wasted fewer chances than Alesi did, so that's, well, that's very true. positive already. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But it was cool watching him. Anyway, anyway. Oh yeah, yeah, great, yeah, great and, story. And it will be cool watching Alesh this year because he is such an emotional character. Team Suzuki, they came over the line sixth and seventh in the MotoGP opener. Juan Mir ahead of his teammate Alex Rins, almost a little bit invisible in my eyes as the race panned out. We were all focusing at the sharp end. Um, middle of the road, middle of the pack. They were together, but split by four seconds. How did they look at it by the time the dust had settled, Simon? It almost feels like last night's Suzuki performance was a very textbook, crap, we only have two riders on the grid result. Um, They got caught out by setup. Um, Different ends of the bike. Um, Mir was having problems with rear grip and and rear tire life. Um, Rins was having problems with the front. 
but it, it, they both admitted that it, it wasn't anything that had changed or that had, you know, it wasn't something that was fundamentally wrong. It was just, they, they just didn't get it right, essentially, um, which wasn't, isn't unexpected because Qatar this year has been quite strange. It's been windy, it's been dusty, sort of alternating. Um, temperature for race day was quite a bit higher than temperature for the rest of the week. The schedule is a bit off, so you only really had two sessions to work on bike setup, session and a half, because FP2 was a qualifying session. So it, it, it was a tough weekend in that regards for a team that only has two bikes. Um, and I think they, they paid the price from that a little bit. Uh, one thing that was said, which was which was reasonably interesting, was Rins thought he could have been faster, but he's also aware of what his 2021 season looked like and what his reputation is for falling off whenever he gets under a bit of pressure. He said he could have went faster, but it would have been too much of a risk. So he sort of went with a new strategy and did something sensible for once. Um, and that that you know that's why he was a little bit further down than expected. But yeah, just a... I think they have to look at as look at it as a blip in the radar. Look at it as something that they didn't need, but they know why it happened. And then whenever we go to Mandalika, a circuit where everyone is tested and everyone has got data, they need to make sure that it does not happen there. They they need to you know. Well, I think Mir, if Mir is to be considered a a title contender, I think he needs to be in the podium in Mandalika to make up for this. I did get, have a little giggle on Friday when Rins was talking about how the, the lack of power had contributed to his mistakes before because he'd been so stressed about being passed on the straights that he made mistakes in the corners. And I was just thinking, so when you cycled into that van, were you texting Sahara going, please, can I have a better... Oh, I've crashed into a van when I was asking for a better engine. But no, yeah, more seriously. Um, Jack Miller's comment. That's a sod comment. That's <laughs> terrible. Maybe, maybe he was, maybe he was worried about another van passing him in the street. Possibly on the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Texting. <laughs> um, Jack Miller's comments about Suzuki on Saturday. I, you couldn't tell from the debriefs on Sunday night if if what Jack had predicted had come true necessarily. But Jack was making the point that okay, Suzuki's got a ton more power now. You looked at Suzuki last few years, thought great cornering bike, just needs a better engine. But a better engine brings new complications. That's why Yamaha's been so reluctant to change its philosophy. The fact that it was tyre life that was hurting Mir did seem like a bit of an alarm bell for something that is going to change when you lob a load more power at the bike. Now, Suzuki has done a lot of advanced work on this. Gintoli was doing amazing work with this 2022 engine very early in 2021. So it's not like it's an unsorted package. But I'm not surprised that they're they're coming across a few surprises in race trim, given how much they have changed. Yeah, I think it's it's not a case of there being anything wrong, and I think Jack's predictions about it being more, more difficult aren't necessarily the truth. I think it's just more different rather than difficult, and it's just gonna it's it's gonna take a few races to gel with it. But they, like I said, they have got an opportunity at Mandalika because of all that testing experience there. Um, Beyond that, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it performs in Termas, which is which is in theory a circuit where it should go quite well. They'll go to Coda quite optimistic because that's a circuit that runs goes well and the bike goes well at. And then we're, we're sort of heading back into Europe where things are a bit more known. So it's it's definitely, it's not quite the strong start to the season they wanted, but it's not a disaster at all for Suzuki yet. It's also what Marquez says. He says he'll go better at Mandalika. He says, obviously, he will go better at uh, Kota as well. So lots of things we've got to uh, to shake out the tree 
Um, there's almost there's almost two races this year that you can not sacrifice because we don't have a point drop like like some championships, but because the championship is so long, I think everyone is aware that everyone will have races where they're not on form now, and it's okay. You know, we we've added an extra two rounds to any previous calendar. It's it's it gives you a little bit more leeway for mistakes. I think so. Yamaha are going to be on the podium in the next race. Not. <laughs> no. No. Wow. No. I wouldn't be surprised if they are. I I, I think the Yamaha problems aren't as nece- aren't necessarily as severe as they appear this weekend. Obviously things were terrible uh, in Qatar at the sale, but I think that they they've maybe been played up a little bit versus the reality. Um they, they they struggled massively here in horsepower to the extent that they just couldn't overtake anyone. And I think that they think that that is a bit of a temporary problem because of the nature of this track. Um, you know, Quattararo was Quattararo in qualifying was was right there on, on P1 pace and then lost 0.4 in the final sector. And then that, that's what cost him you know, every fast lap. So they, they know what the problem is. Uh, he's very, the one thing he is very unhappy with more than the engine performance now is the aerodynamics package. They've slapped a great big massive new front wing in the bike and it seems to be sucking power out of it. So he has he has essentially given an ultimatum to Yamaha that this this aero package needs to go before Mugello because they can't race it there. So there has to be either a newly homologated wing comes at Mugello or they go back to the old one. Um, but the fact that he has definite solutions but doesn't need them implemented until six races into the championship makes me think that it's it's really not a complete disaster the quickest man in the race yesterday in speed was Juan Mir uh just miles ahead of everybody else even with the averages of five of his best top speeds taken over the start finish line so the Suzuki's got the poke but as you said Matt it'll just open up sardine tin of where's the next weakest link uh the the quickest yamaha morbidelli he's giving away six seven eight kilo five miles an hour eight kilometers an hour to said suzuki and quattararo's further down so yeah simon what you say as always spot on they need speed and they need a lot of it sorry matt no, I was just going to say, like, okay, Qatar is a bad track for that, but the level of power deficit and straight line deficit Yamaha's got, that there's not a circuit where that won't hurt, and especially with it so close, and especially it's not just like they've got one rival with a massive engine that they're trailing, it's the other five manufacturers have not got this problem that Yamaha have got now, but potentially even more costly, I think, is it's so much on Quattararo's mind. You know, it's what he's been talking about since the, the first test last winter, all through the rest of the tests and all through this weekend when he's kind of moved into this sort of resigned phase of this is how it is, I'm pushing at my maximum, but this is all that's going to come from it. And yeah, I don't doubt that he is pushing at his maximum, but it's a different kind of maximum if you think there's there's not really any hope for the, for the time being until until the bike's changed. You're not going to, I don't see that he's going to be making decisions with the same sharpness that he would if he had confidence that he had a, a race winning and championship winning bike. Arguably, the thing that turned this weekend into from a from a pretty mediocre weekend into a bad weekend for Yamaha was Suzuki finding more speed, because in a normal season you would have at least expected them to be in front of the two Suzukis at this race instead of just behind them. So I think that is probably the yeah the reflection of where things have been. 
went so wrong at the weekend? We touched on the difficulties, should I say, uh, at Works Ducati, but for Jorge Martin to be taken out by Banyaya, terrifying crash. You thought that he was going to have a hand or something tucked in a wheel or a chain or a sprocket or a foot peg in his in his leg or something. That was terrifying crash for Jorge Martin. What had he got to say after he got back to the to the to the pits? Very little, really. I think he he was trying to make the most out of a race that was more difficult than he expected it to be. Um, for some of the same issues that the factory team have having, of of kind of constantly jumping around between bikes and really not being that ready for a race. Uh, and then yeah, he got he did nothing wrong really. Left the door open a little bit perhaps, but you know he he was kind of. Yeah, didn't want to talk too much, which is not like Jorge Martin afterwards. Um, I got the sense that it was very much a, this has happened, this is behind me, on to the next one. Because what else can you really say? Not much else, not much else. <clears throat> what other things popped out of the first weekend? Oh, you've put me in the spot a bit now, Toby. Yeah, it doesn't have to be. <laughs> I wasn't the... expecting that. It's like, ooh. It, no, 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 it doesn't have to be on the track. You know, uh, back of the garages, press office, Really, really Dawner good news vibe. I think everything is everything. Everyone is really glad to be back racing um, in what feels like the start of a normal championship. Um, it's been, it's been, it's not been normal for the past two years in the paddock, and it felt normal this weekend. That's nice. Everyone's mixing and mingling again. Um, basically, the only restriction now is that everyone's still wearing masks indoor and outdoors. But apart from that, it, it you know it, it feels like the old paddock. It feels sociable again which is great um, great fun. Uh, and obviously Qatar is quite good for that as well because where all of the writers do their TV interviews is just next to the media centre. And they all come to the media, through the media centre to get there. And then on top of that, this weekend, the media centre had really good snacks and coffee. So we've had like a constant stream of writers coming to hang out uh, with us all weekend. I think every minute that they weren't in the garage, John McPhee and Scott Ogden, our, our new, new Moto3 writer, were just hanging around in the media centre with us. Um, so to have all of that again is quite good. And, you know, you'd be sitting at your desk and, like, Rins would walk past and stop for a chat or a leash. Or, it's good. It's a good feeling to have that vibe. Um, Aleish had his kids back with him as well, which is the sort of the first time they've been hanging around in the paddock. And it, it, it feels like olden times. Ban motorhomes from the European races. <laughs> <laughs> I always said that the Qatar was the best race because they yeah. had nowhere to hide. And it's always been, because it's a quieter paddock, it's always been traditionally the only race where riders wander around the paddock instead of blast around in scooters so they don't get stopped. So it's it's the paddock where you see riders the most, which is quite nice too. Yeah. yeah like It's not the worst place in the world, Qatar. Good turnout of press in the press office? Yeah, kind of getting back to getting back to real numbers again too. Um, so the the, the we're still doing the mixed Zoom versus in person media debriefs, and thankfully now sort of every every race another team stops doing Zoom and goes back to just doing face to face interviews, which is so much nicer. You can, I think, for everyone, you can see the relief on a rider's face whenever they actually get to talk to a human instead of a screen about their day. Um, so yeah, hopefully, hopefully we have a relatively normal season. And from a calendar perspective, I can't see any changes coming now. Um, apart from you know, there's still a few paddock question marks about Finland, 
um, and what's going to happen there, simply because it's a bit of an unknown. But Paddock questions. From everything I've heard, you question some people oh, in the paddock about are we, you know, is it really going to happen? Just because we're not sure of, of what the state of construction stuff is there. But, you know, it's Finland. If if it's going to be done, it's going to be done right and it's going to be done on time. Um, so I, I don't foresee any issues. Interesting, interesting. <clears throat> what do you, Matt, take away from this weekend? What what frisson of excitement does it give you as we go into Mandalika, not this weekend coming, but after a, a weekend's break? I still feel like we have no idea what's going to happen next. You look at the podium yesterday. Does anybody does anybody really think Bastianini or uh, Polis Bargro <laughs> or Brad Binder is going to be world champion? I, I definitely don't. I can see them all winning winning races. Maybe maybe not Paul. To be honest, I think he shows why he hasn't won yet yesterday. But no, I've got I've got no idea really where things stand on a more normal circuit in a more normal situation. I've got no idea what's going to happen for the rest of the season, and uh, and that's awesome, isn't it? Just just one other thing to throw out there because um, it feels like it probably should be acknowledged. But we went three days of a race weekend with fantastic action and incredible excitement and, you know, loads of people following along and no one missed Valentino Rossi at all. It's the first race without him oh, and yeah. it's he wasn't the first there. race without him and no one even noticed. Which is which is don't don't for one minute take that as Valentino Rossi bashing. It's just it's it's proof of what Rude Health the championship's in. Yes, and we were let down gently, I suppose throughout the second half of yeah, last we year were. we knew it was coming then it yeah. did have he did give us the announcement and it all came to a, a stop in 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 Valencia I thought quite badly I thought they could have done a better job on the cooling down lap but what's done is done that's just my opinion um and he's um he's now a dad so you know yes congratulations <laughs> you know, we, we, yeah our first podcast as uh there's a uh a, a little baby girl uh, Julietta, the Valentino. Julietta. And also also worth noting, the other part of his legacy is that VR46 riders won the Moto2 and Moto3 races at the weekend. Exactly, exactly. With uh, Andrea Migno winning, uh, uh, he's, a, he's a great lad. Uh, I put a tweet out after that uh, Migno won and I said his last victory, which of course was his first victory, which was Mugello 2017. He was in the next door garage to us at KTM with the VR46, the Sky, great colour scheme that bike, Sky colour scheme. Um, and he was there at the end of the day as an Italian who's just won the Italian Moto3 race at Mugello and he was helping the boys deconstruct the garage and put it in the truck. And I thought, you're all right, you are. I like you. So I've always had a bit of a soft spot for him ever since. So it's great to see him victorious again. Although... While we're talking about Moto3 and soft spots, I have to throw out a mention for you. Mr. Zaki, who was absolutely robbed by a bad tyre. Like, he had that wrapped up in, in a way that people just don't win Moto3 races at at, at, at Qatar. Four-second lead until the yeah. tyre went wrong. Yeah. <sighs> These things happen, though. It's racing. His time will come. His time will come. He'll be okay. He'll be okay. Um, <clears throat> I have to give a shout-out to Simon Crafer. Uh, I watched through the MotoGP app and he was in the commentary box for Saturday afternoon qualifying and I thought he was really, really good. I thought it, it, it's a different thing being in the pit lane as to being somebody 
as a number two commentator upstairs in the commentary box. And he was answering questions from Matt Burt with that rider's head on. He knows what the brakes feel like. He knows what the squish in the front will feel like. He'll know what the power delivering the torque mapping will kind of feel like and the psychology of a racer. And it really gave Simon an opportunity to, 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 to purvey that to us, the viewers at home, Whereas when he's in the pit lane, he can't do that because he's just asking questions. So then, Lynn Jarvis, what problems have you got with your Yamaha? So then, Livio Supo, what is it like with Suzuki? That's a different kind of journalism. And I thought he did really, really well. So, Simon, uh, well done. Keep it up. Look forward to more uh, hearing you from the commentary box more like that. In the meantime, keep in touch with therace.com. Don't forget the dash. We've got Formula One, IndyCar, Formula E, news and other podcasts online through our website. Give a special look to our YouTube video channel. And there's a very interesting video there about how McLaren has beaten the problem so many other Formula One teams are having before the Formula One season kicks off in Bahrain on March the 20th. Great insights by our colleagues on four wheels over there. In the meantime, from Matt Beer, Simon Patterson and myself, Toby Moody, enjoy your week. We will speak to you soon, giving you more MotoGP news. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.